And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Kiara, who is a fellow YouTuber, and on her channel, she talks analytically about spiritual and mystical phenomena. And today we'll talk about her own spiritual awakening following her OBE, spirituality, science, and more. Kiara, thank you so much for joining me today and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you also for the work um, that you do. I think that it's really wonderful that you've cultivated a space where people feel comfortable sharing these stories because um, I think that a lot of people, when they've had an experience that doesn't fit in our framework of reality, they don't necessarily want to talk about it, you know, for fear of being laughed at, for fear of being called crazy, for fear of being judged. And I think that's really unfortunate because all of these experiences kind of represent um, what I think is our greatest untapped potential as a species. And we're never going to tap into that potential unless we start normalizing these conversations. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Oh, well, thank you. Well, on that note, let's talk about your spiritual experience. You had an OBE and you became spiritually awakened. What happened? I had had a lot of those experiences as a child in the sense that I had um, a lot of encounters that made me suspect that reality is not what we are taught. And I had worked really hard to push it out of uh, my worldview and try to ignore it. And I was successful in that until 2017 when I had an out-of-body experience. And so I had just graduated from college and wanted to study, not study abroad, but I wanted to have an experience abroad. And so I decided that I was going to teach English and study Muay Thai in Thailand for a year. And it was a really wonderful experience. And I had those three months off as a teacher. And one of the things I wanted to go do was um, a silent meditation camp at Vipassana camp. And they're very traditional. Ascetic is the word that comes to mind where you've got like um, this, this marble stone bed that you sleep on. You have like a wood pillow. Uh, you eat like a bowl of rice a day. You wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning. You meditate until 9 p.m. So it's like it's like the monks do it. And I was like, heck yeah, I'm brand new to meditation, but this seems like <laughs> the best way to get involved. And on the seventh day, I started to get um, really sick. Like I just felt ill and I had this rash breakout all over my body. And so I decided that it would be best to go see a doctor in Bangkok. And I caught a sleeper train. And as I was falling asleep on the train, um, I started having this feeling of like electricity running through my body, um, like hot, cold flashes. Uh, my throat started to close. My heart was pounding super fast and um, just in general felt like I was going to pass out or die or something. And so long story made short, I made them stop the train <laughs> in the middle of the jungle and ambulance came, picked me up. And uh, when I got to the hospital, they looked me over and they they were like, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with you. Are you one of those tourists that's on drugs? And I'm like, no, I'm not on drugs. I was just at a meditation camp. And so they gave me a shot of antihistamines. I don't know why they put me on a bus and I was okay for another couple of hours until it started to happen again. Same sensations of like um, electricity, like a current um, running through my body and the pounding heart and all the rest. And I didn't want to make a scene like I did on the train. So I was like, I'm just going to go down to the bathroom and die quietly without disturbing anyone. That was my plan. <laughs> so I went down to the bathroom and as if it wasn't already like trippy enough, I get to this bathroom and the entire thing is mirrored. So like the walls are mirrors, the ceiling is a mirror 
And I sit down and I'm like looking at just like infinite reflections of myself in all directions. And the whole time I'm feeling like I'm going to die because it's like physically very painful. And I think back to what happened at the meditation camp where one of the things the monk had said was um, one of our teachers had said that if you focus on your breath, you'll know what it feels like to take your last. And so I started to meditate. And as I did this, um, I I still am not 100% sure what happened, if it's like a traditional OBE or if it was like by location, but it was like being in two places at once where there was the version of me that was sitting. And then I was also at the same time had this view from up above. And it was like the, the version of me that was sitting, there was a like a copy that would fall out and on the ground and dissipate. And it would happen again and again. And it was like watching myself die over and over. And um, it simultaneously felt like two minutes and an eternity. And I just watched this until <laughs> someone knocked on the door and that like snapped me out of it. And we had arrived in Bangkok. So I was in there for a whole two hours. Um, just watching this scene on replay, it was very bizarre. And then following that, in the two years following that, I had all kinds of weird physical symptoms, everything from I would have those same flashes of like the the energy current running through the body. Some people would call this like a Kundalini awakening. Um, I had uh, crazy migraines, and I would hear like this super loud ringing in either ear. Sometimes I would go deaf in one ear, Um, I would see flashing lights, I would get super dizzy and fall over, um, had just like a slew of weird symptoms, the, the boils, the rashes. Um, there was even one summer where I woke up and my entire shoulder slash side of neck was like paralyzed. Um, like it, it felt like I had whiplash and I could not turn my head for three months. And so that went on for a while and um, doctors had no idea what was wrong with me. I thought I was either dying or had an autoimmune disorder or something neurological. And it wasn't until I started to come around to the idea that maybe it was psycho-spiritual um, that these things started to go away. It's like I was fighting it for two years that something like that could even be possible. You know, I would say I'm a very technical, analytical person, and this really did not fit within my um, relatively limited worldview and was forcing me to expand in ways that I wasn't necessarily comfortable with at the time. So um, once I came around to the possibility that, okay, this started at a meditation camp. So maybe it is like spiritual in origin. Um, and I, it, it started to unravel from there. And I went down this rabbit hole of trying to understand the, um, the science, the research, uh, the evidence for all of these phenomena that we don't currently understand, whether it's OBEs or NDEs or psychic phenomena is something that is um, a big interest of mine, because I, I really do feel like the answers are out there. Uh, and we just have to connect the dots. Some of the people who have OBEs hear a buzzing or an electrical sound. You seem like you had the electricity in your body. Did you hear anything like that? For me, it's always been ringing. Um, so I'm not sure if it's entirely the same thing. And I know what you're talking about because Robert Monroe talks about that too in his books. And he talks about how sometimes it's a buzzing, sometimes it's a roaring. I didn't have that in, at least I don't remember. I don't remember a whole lot about the the actual bilocation out of body part, um, except for the visual. But I will say um, leading up to it and then in the years following it, uh, I definitely heard 
like strange ringing noises quite regularly to the point where, like I said, I would go deaf in my left ear. Do you think immediately after you had the OBE or after the couple of years that you've processed it and had all the other phenomena happen to you, have you been spiritually transformed due to either one of those? Oh, yeah. I would say I'm not even close to the same person that I was, what, five years ago? And even in this last year, um, I think once you realize that that we have the capacity for uh, expansion and that it is just this like big game of consciousness, I think you're constantly transforming. I think you're constantly letting pieces of yourself die that don't serve you. I think you're constantly being um, reborn in ways that are a, a better service to yourself and the people around you. So I would say, yes, it's been nonstop transformation. From what I understand, your channel is a combination of mysticism, spirituality, and science. And now that we've learned about your spiritual background, can you give us a little bit about your science background? Yeah, so um, not not a trained scientist, mm -hmm. but I have always had um, a lot of interest in science in all shapes and sizes. And for me, it's a matter of the reason why I was drawn to science in particular is because I just couldn't get my left brain on board. I, I was like, my logical mind was like, this is not possible. And I think a lot of people have these experiences and I envy them that they can just believe in things, right? Like ascended masters and angels and aliens and all this stuff. And I'm like, I want it to be real, but I also, a part of me is always going to be wondering, am I just crazy? You know? And so for me, it was trying to bridge um, the direct experience with something that my logical mind could get on board with. And so the, the, one of the answers, I think, is science. How can we study this? How can we prove it? What evidence is there for it? Um, and there's a, a ton of it out there is the surprising part. I don't think people realize that the field of parapsychology has an overwhelming amount of evidence. And there's uh, several classes of, experience, of experiments that have actually exceeded what they call the Six Sigma threshold. And that means that the odds against chance are calculated at uh, one to a billion. So basically, there's no chance that it's chance. There is more evidence for some forms of psychic phenomena than there are for a number of pharmaceuticals that people take regularly. So after you had your OBE, did you try to verify it scientifically? And if so, were you able to? Not OBEs. Um, I, like I said, for the first two years, I was just in total denial. I thought that I was going crazy or dying. Um, and I, I read like Robert Monroe and stuff, but it, it's not like, and I, I appreciate how he tried to study it in the laboratory. None of that was super convincing to me. And so I've started with the things that there are a lot of evidence for. Um, I think that, you know, when I've told people that experience about that experience, one of the things that uh, a few people have mentioned is the idea of shamanic journeying, where it's like a very vivid visual visual. It honestly, it reminds me of the way people describe ayahuasca, where it's almost like augmented reality, where it, like, yes, you exist in this reality, but then you can also see other things. Um, haven't done psychedelics as of yet, but I think that it's probably similar to that. And so I don't know how how much that aligns with like a traditional OBE. Like I think of the way that, um, you know, Monroe, who was like the granddaddy of the out-of-body experience, I think about the way he writes about it. And I don't know if it's quite the same. I think all of this stuff is related. And I think it all is testament to the mystical underpinnings of life. Um, but as for OBEs in particular, and there's not as much data either behind something like that. I know that they are um, like relatively common. And even when you look at people who've had near-death experiences, right? Like I, those stories of people who have the out-of-body experience when they die, and then they can actually um, 
like verify what was being said in the room at the time or who tried to revive them or where their family was and those kinds of things. So we have um, anecdotal data, but when it comes to like actually testing things, it's much harder to do with something like an out-of-body experience. And so when you're looking for things you can study in the laboratory, you're a little more limited. And that's one of the biggest hangups in Psy research is that often the experiences that we have that make us realize these things are real are very difficult to replicate in a lab, like, like a, like a near death experience, right? That's not something we can really replicate. Mm. And so um, I wouldn't, I, I haven't looked, there isn't as much digging to do um, when it comes to out of body experiences. Um, there's a whole lot of scientific evidence though, for psychic other, other psychic phenomena, things like clairvoyance, telepathy, remote viewing, and that kind of stuff. So that's really where I've been spending the bulk of my time. So on your channel, you like to look at different viewpoints of religion, spirituality, mysticism, and see how some of the ideas overlap. And I think you believe the parts that overlap must be true. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. I think that when you take people from really diverse walks of life, and they say similar things, that tends to be where the grain of truth is, right? It's like, if we just cross-reference everything, what is it that um, is at that focal point? Like, I think, of, I think of truth as being like a wheel and you've got all these spokes pointing inward to a central truth. And so, you know, like in, I think of the people on your channel who have talked about um, their NDEs and you start to notice themes and those themes tell us something that I think gets us closer to what the truth is. Truth with a capital T. What are some of the big truths that you have discovered by looking at these overlapping of ideas? I would say one of the absolute biggest things is that reality is not what we are taught, right? This idea of like the third dimension and anyone who has had an experience that doesn't fit within our framework of reality um, knows this is the case. And, and we get we get taste of this in the esoteric and philosophy and religion and science with like, especially quantum physics is trying to indicate this as or starting to indicate this as well and so i would say um there's that element of it and we start when when we start examining well what is the nature of reality then i think one of those big truths with a capital t is that everything is interconnected and the fact that everything is interconnected is why a lot of these experiences are possible so for um for example like telepathy right um the reason that it's possible is because people's brain waves can sync the reason that's possible is because we're not just like chemical reactions in our brain. Um, we are part of a field of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And this is something that, you know, parapsychologists um, are really pushing for. And there's a whole lot of resistance because the dominant paradigm is materialism. And materialism tells us that we are just machines made of meat. And if we were to look at the sciences as a pyramid, we would have physics at the bottom. And then we would have biology and then we would have chemistry. And then consciousness is like this happy accident that we just tack onto the top. We don't know where it came from. It was like on the eighth day, God sprinkled fairy dust and was like, bam, you have self-cognition. Like we just don't know. We don't have an explanation for it. And they keep trying to look for consciousness in the brain and they're not able to find it. And so what, what is so interesting about um, this psi research, this field of study is that they're arguing that consciousness is not at the top of the pyramid, it's at the bottom. Consciousness is fundamental. Everything comes out of consciousness and it's non-local. So the reason that we can't find consciousness in our brain is because this isn't necessarily where it's located. And that is what gives rise to all of these phenomena that we don't necessarily understand at this point in time. 
Do you think consciousness is like a magnetic field that's around our body within a few feet? Oh man, I, you know, I really don't have the answer at this point as to what consciousness is. I do think that it's a field and I do think that we are kind of like focal points or modems for it. And so I think that there would be, yes, like a concentration of it, like in us or around us. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I also think that it's tied to something bigger, right? Um, the absolute, the formless as, as it's called, I think it's absolute in Hinduism, um, but yeah, to to an extent, I think that it's concentrated around us and it is uh, a field, a larger field that we're part of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I heard you say somewhere on your channel that maybe everything is all part of this one large consciousness. One consciousness, infinite possibilities. Yeah. yeah. On your channel, you also talk about that you filter out some of the BS that's out there. <laughs> Can you give us some examples of the BS that you have filtered out? Okay. So I I hate to call it BS because I think people, I like, I love listening to people's stories, but I also think that especially on the internet, you get a proliferation of things that just aren't true. And I think that people, you know, they may have some like precognitive dreams or something, or they may be intuitive in some ways, but then we run into this thing that Ingo Swan called analytical overlay, which is where our egoic mind, our left brain consciousness kind of takes these ideas and runs away with them. And essentially it's just making up stories. And so I think you get a lot of stuff, um, especially when you start exploring spiritual communities that just probably aren't true. And so what I'm interested in is corroborating these things. Like, well, in what ways are they true? I think I made a video um, on twin flames like a year ago. And I think that there is some definite um, substance to that idea, but I also think that the internet has sort of taken it and, and morphed it into something that is, more damaging in some ways than true, right? Like you've got this, these huge communities of people who um, are involved in like very toxic relationships and are trying to justify them because they're like, oh, they're, but they're my twin flame, right? Like we're meant to be when really, maybe that's not the case. Maybe um, that's like the ego running away and telling stories, but people see that. And this is where some of the problems are in these spiritual communities. People see that and they're like, how can I make money off of this person's suffering, right? And so you've got all of these, these coaches that offer like twin flame reunion services and like, Oh, how can we, you know, force these people together or whatever. And they try to like magic them or law of attraction them together. And so for me, things like that, I'll look at the idea of twin flames and um, take an analytical lens to it. But when I say filter out the BS, I mean, um, there's just a lot of made up stuff that if you are even a little bit discerning, you can sift through pretty easily. I'm hoping you can give us some of that juicy stuff. <laughs> I try. Well, like, for example, like, it's a common thing for people to say, you only use 5% of your brain. You know, there, I think that's the statement. You only use 5% of your brain. If we used all of it, we could do amazing things. But brain scans show that we use all of our brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just different parts at different times. Mm-hmm. But there's the reason we have a whole brain is because we need the whole thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's also, I think, interesting that we may, the brain may actually be holographic. And so um, what I mean by that, the idea of a hologram, right, is that every piece contains the whole. And um, there's, I forget what disease it is, but there's this disease that people can get where it essentially liquefies their brain. And they have seen people who have this and they'll have like literally 5% of their brain left. 
but they are fully functioning. And what's interesting about that is all of these, you know, we think that the brain is associated like, okay, so this part of your brain is like the fear center. This part of your brain is what controls your motor abilities and the like. Um, but in, in these particular cases, these people have all of these, um, they're able to perform these functions that they shouldn't be given what is happening or not happening rather in their brain. So I think, I think that gets into that whole thing of like brain versus consciousness and we don't really understand the relationship between those things. I was just reading, um, Ingo Swan has this great book called Psychic Literacy, and he was writing about this man who had a miracle healing at Lourdes. Um, so like this, this uh, Christian pilgrimage site where they've got like this healing water. And uh, he had basically a very difficult life that left him um, pretty crippled. And when he got to the water, Eventually, I think it took him years, but when he got to the water, he had lost like total control over, um, he was like the left side of his body and he like could not move his arm at all. And uh, it was something like, like a bullet had severed whatever tendons are responsible for allowing you to move your arm. And somehow after he had this spiritual experience at the site, it all healed and he was able to move his arm again. And so that's that idea of like our body and our consciousness appear to be different. And sometimes our consciousness can um, create changes in our physiology that we, that we can't attribute to like a physical healing, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I think that the guys who now are studying epigenetics and neuroplasticity are showing that, you know, once you change your consciousness, you know, people are getting healed of all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you this. Do you know if Ingo Swan is still alive? He's not. He died in 2013. Mm, darn, I'd like to get him on as a guest because- Oh I, my God. Yeah, that would be amazing. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he was like the, one of the main guys or maybe the originator of the remote viewers. He was. So he actually, he coined the term. And Ingo is a really unique case because um, <laughs> not only was he like a master psychic, but he was also able to replicate it in laboratories, mm-hmm. which is difficult. I think a lot of people- Um, intuitives get like performance anxiety when they're put into like, you know, the stark, very clinical setting of a laboratory. And a lot of times um, when they run side tests, like in a horse choice experiment, uh, which is like a, it's a kind of precognition experiment. We actually see people's um, performance decline over time and Ingo just got better. And so, yes, he um, brought remote viewing to the world at first with um, the Stanford research Institute. It was a specific branch of it called the remote viewing program. And it was founded by Hal Putoff, but especially Russell Targ. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was at first the three of them. And then came Pat Price, who was this psychic policeman. He was a commissioner who would help uh, basically policemen hunt down um, criminals. And he did this also through remote viewing. And so you had this like dream team of psychics in the in the 70s. And then the CIA caught winds and brought them on for Project Stargate, which was a $20 million, 20-year program investigating uh, military applications for psychic abilities. So, you know, how do we use this to spy on people and kill them? Probably not the best use of those things, but leave it to our government. So <laughs> uh, I had Major Ed Dames on and he was with the U.S. Army and their work with remote viewing. And he talked a little bit about Ingo Swan. Yeah. So I know that um, after, maybe it was even during Stargate, but at some point they also brought it to the army. Ed Dames is the one, um, he gets very catac- cataclysmic 
like end of the world is that one? Uh, yeah, he, I mean he hasn't with me, but yeah, he's yeah he's known for that. I think some people even call him Doctor Doom. Doctor Doom, <laughs> uh, because a lot of his stuff is yeah end of the world. And actually, my most fascinating thing that I had when we had our conversation was toward the end is he was saying that I think our planet is too far gone. And we need aliens to come fix this place. Oh, that, that opens a whole can of worms. Um, you know, and I live, I live next to Sedona and a lot of them would say that aliens are already here, right. In the form of light workers, in the form of star seeds, there are people who are, um, guiding, guiding the course. And I think, I think it's interesting because I think people can sense that we are on the cusp of a, of an evolutionary moment. And I understand where um, major, major dames is coming from, especially because the era that we're living through now has actually been prophesized on either side of the Atlantic by cultures all over the world, whether it's the Toltecs talking about um, the dawning of the age of the sixth sun, time of the sixth sun, or it's, um, you know, the end of the era of Kali Yuga. So we are at this really important point, And a lot of people can feel that even if we look back the past 20 years in like Hollywood, and I think um, the, the all of these dystopian films, um, things like Black Mirror and the like, I think that that's so prevalent in the collective consciousness is because we realize that that is a possibility. And so the way I see it is that we are sort of coming to... Um, this fork in the road where the world's going to go one of two ways. One being um, probably everything that major dames is concerned about. And the other being what people call the new earth. And um, the new earth is this idea of it's governed by the age of Aquarius, right? And Aquarius is the sign of technological advancement, innovation, brotherly love, creativity. And so it really is supposed to be the golden age of humanity. And um, I think that which timeline we end up on, is going to be uh, a result of what the collective believes and what actions we take. So it's it's an exciting time to be alive, and I don't think anyone can say for certain which way the world is going. Now, you live near Sedona, and they say in Sedona they have these vortexes. Is that true, and have you ever experienced them? Yeah, I was there yesterday. Um, so the vortexes are, they're like, energy points and they, people say they do different things, like help you balance your energy or whatever. And so you've got like feminine uh, ones, you've got masculine ones and you go and you visit them and they're great to meditate. A lot of people can feel um, if they're energy sensitive, you can actually feel the pull of them. Um, But it's interesting because especially I think it's cathedral rock. There's a few different hikes and they're all gorgeous. And there's this one in particular where all of the trees start growing sideways and they like spiral on the hill and they're like pointing the direction to the vortex. Mm. Um, So yes, those are around here. And that's part of the reason why this was a very uh, sacred place to indigenous people. And they would actually travel here annually to have like their healing rituals and the like, they didn't live here because the energy is so intense. I don't live in Sedona. I'm like 30 minutes from it, but they didn't live there because um, it's very uh, intense energy. So it's, it's great to visit, um, but they did not live there. And then, you know, got a, got a bunch of white tourists there now. <laughs> Are they marked? Like, is that how you find them? No, um, you can just look them up like online and you, you'll probably know when you're, when you're in the vicinity of one. Um, they'll give you like general, uh, general idea of the location and then 
based on like, honestly, the way that the trees are pointing and, and most people can feel it when they walk into that space. What did you feel? Energy. I don't even know if I can necessarily put words to it. I feel, and it's way easier for me to get into a meditative state when I'm in those places. Um, they're peaceful. You made a statement on your channel and it was something like that a lot of the world's information is inaccessible by design. Can you comment <laughs> on that? Okay, I should preface this by saying that I'm a little bit anti-establishment in the sense that I really don't trust our government. And I think that um, when it comes to Psy, I do wonder if these things are kept from us by design. And the reason I wonder that is because um, it would seem that a lot of these institutions, like the CIA certainly knows that this stuff is real. Um, there's, there's been actually a lot of other military programs, like talks, top secret stuff where they are looking into extended human capacities. And so we know that it exists. And yet it's not something that's super widespread. Um, people don't really know about it. And so, you know, even though the documents are declassified, people aren't necessarily going to go take the time to read it. And you have to think about what's declassified. That is a fragment of the truth, right? Or even the example of aliens. Like that's something that I really do think is kept from us by design, right? We've had so many people come out and be like, hey, like Edgar Allan Mitchell, right? There is there is an article on military.com where um, they're talking about how, or not Edgar Allan Mitchell, Edgar Mitchell. Um, I think it was, I was, splicing that with Edgar Allan Poe, but Edgar Mitchell, he was an astronaut. And he also went on to found the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And he um, believed, and he, and this is written on the website, he believed that the reason nuclear war was avoided was because of alien intervention. And yet our government has never really come out and told us straight that, yeah, these, these exist. And, you know, we've been having contact since whenever, since really the beginning of human history, perhaps. Um, and so I think that it is kept from us by design with aliens and with psi phenomena. And the reason I think the, the psi stuff is kept from us is because if people knew this stuff was real, we would live in a world of total transparency, right? If everyone knew how to remote view, if um, everyone knew how to discern the truth, and that's a whole lot of what it means to be quote unquote psychic is the ability to see truth, right? That's why they called it um, truth saying or soothsaying. And so, or being a seer, it's being able to um, discern the truth. And if we did that, I think a lot of the systems that currently exist would completely crumble. Um, I don't think that they would, they're already not sustainable. But when people saw them for what they were, like the people who are in power would lose that power. What do you think about the Pentagon's release on UFOs that happened a few months ago? Um, it's a good starting point. <laughs> I don't know. I think what they said is there's stuff out there, but we don't know what it is. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I don't really like they're like, oh, it could be like Russians or something. Right. And I'm like. What they're telling us and the only, they're never going to tell us everything that they know, right? It's always going to be like something that serves an agenda is what I think. And it's really interesting. Um, there was a, he was a Nazi, but he was a um, German physicist who they brought over after the war. They brought over a ton of Nazis and into yeah. the American government. Don't ask me why. Mm -hmm. um, but this particular man said that first it would be the communists. No, first it would be, yeah, first it would be the communists. Then it would be the terrorists. Then it would be the aliens. Alien was like the last thing. And the idea is you create um, an enemy that isn't really there in order to um, 
get people riled up about something. And so I think that combined with the fact that they're, they're telling us, but they're not really telling us to me is like cause for suspicion. And I would say that whatever it is that the U S government comes out and tells us about extraterrestrials, it's never going to be the full truth. And I think we have to probably look to other sources. I don't know what the sources are, maybe the direct experience, maybe aliens themselves um, coming on the Jeff Mara podcast. That would be awesome. I would be but, amazing. Yeah. I think that um, those are the sources that we're going to have to rely on and not these people with an agenda, especially when parts of that agenda have been disclosed and the idea that they, you know, back in, when was that after the, after the war, they were already talking about how they could use aliens in order to scare people and manipulate them into doing whatever, giving away their liberties and the uh, centralization of, of global power, I think is what a lot of this comes down to. If you're an alien and you're watching the podcast, please contact me so we can get you on and you can finally give us some disclosure. <laughs> Honest to God. <laughs> I read that you used to work with IONS. What is IONS and what is your biggest takeaway from that? Yeah, the Institute of Noetic Sciences. So like I mentioned, they were founded by um, Edgar Mitchell and they are leading researchers in non-local consciousness. And I should also maybe share a little bit about how I came to IONS. It was kind of funny. Mm -hmm. I was watching, it was over a year ago, last, yeah, last fall, I was watching a documentary on Gaia and Dean Radin came on and Dr. Dean Radin, and he was talking about the work that he was doing there. And I was like, my God, I did my life wrong. Like these people are studying everything that I care about. And um, he majored in transpersonal psychology. Like, I guess that's what I should have majored in. So I could be in a room with these people studying these things. And I bought a bunch of his books and kind of just forgot about um, the whole thing for a while until four months later, I had logged into a freelance writing email that I no longer use. And um, read, I had like 4,000 unread emails, like roundup emails from Indeed. Hmm. I scrolled halfway down, clicked on a random one, scrolled halfway down that and stopped dead on a part-time opening for a freelance writer with the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And I was like, no way, like that is made for me. And so got the job and spent um, 10 months writing for them about all of their, like their scientific stuff, helping them with their SEO strategy. And it was really, really amazing. Um, my biggest takeaway was really just uh, a sense of certainty that all of this stuff is real and that the work they are doing is going to be really key in shifting us onto the timeline that doesn't suck. <laughs> it sounds yeah. like you had an amazing job. Why did you leave? I actually felt as though it had kind of run its course. Um, I was really sad to leave. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe we'll do something in the future, but at the end of the day, I'm not really a copywriter. I'm a strategist and I work for a venture studio and I've got like, um, a pretty, a pretty, um, cool skill set that wasn't going to be utilized in that space. And copywriters are like a dime a dozen. You can find a lot of people who are copywriting and know about sci, right? Like that's not hard to find. I felt like I had given them the best thing that I could, which was an SEO strategy because I have spent four years in search engine optimization. And um, it's really hard to find an SEO who also understands um, the, the research, the parapsychology research, right? So coming up with a strategy that would help them get found online was like probably the most helpful thing I could offer them. And once that was done, um, I just am so busy with my regular job and I really wanted to put more time into my channel because I was posting 
inconsistently that I was like, something's got to give. And I think this is what it is. So I'm definitely like keeping in touch. They're, they're wonderful people. Um, but it was just something that I think had run its course. What inspires you about the videos that you make on your channel? The comments, uh, hands down, the fact that there are people out there in the world that have had the direct experience that believe in these things and are interested in normalizing the conversation. I would say that my favorite part of that channel is definitely reading through people's stories and listening to the way they relate to the topics we talk about um, and also their takes on these things. You know, I don't have all the answers. Um, I'm just here to like start conversations and some fires. And I love that people are in on it. What is your strategy for creating your videos? <laughs> so far there hasn't really been one. Mm. Um, now, <clears throat> now I'm kind of tackling it by topic. I would say, I know there's a lot of ground that needs to be covered. Um, and so I'm starting with these six, I think it's six, yeah, six classes of experiments that have reached what they call statistical significance. So that's six sigma threshold. Um, and kind of going through them bit by bit. And I tend to really uh, lean into the books that I'm reading. Um, and so it tends to be that whatever I'm reading at the time informs my content for the coming months. And it was kind of like I was doing one-offs for a while. And now I've gotten to the point where I've got like a backlog of four videos and I'm trying to get ahead so I can, you know, not only publish consistently, but ideally a couple times a week. So my strategy has been to read the things that I love and think are important. Ingo Swan, Dean Radin, um, Greg Braden, all that stuff. And then um, come up with a way of weaving narrative around it and making it uh, accessible in a video format to people. Obviously, people aren't seeing it here because we're just kind of hanging out. But one of the things I really like about your channel is the theatricalness of it and the dramaticness of it <laughs> because you kind of present your videos in like a – sometimes you're dressed like a sorceress or you have like costumes and stuff. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So the other thing that I really like about making those videos is I'm totally feeding my inner child. Like I turned my, my, turned my dining room into a set. Um, and I love like the dress up component of it. I play a little bit of a character like this, this sort of, um, mad witch is what I call her and lean into that for sure. Um, but that's, that just feeds, uh, feeds the creative part of my soul. I would say. <laughs> That's cool. I think it's great. I mean, are you into cosplay or only just the sorceress character? Oh my God. If I had time, I would probably be into cosplay. I did a lot of run fairs um, mm. when I lived in California. So I have a suit of armor that I will break out on occasion. Have you had any other paranormal experiences that you can share with us? Yeah, a lot of them. Um, like I said, I had a lot of these experiences as a kid and then shut them out. And then they resurfaced with my spiritual awakening. But as a kid, um, a lot of precognitive dreams. So dreaming things before they've happened, um, which is a well-documented thing throughout history. Abraham Lincoln dreamed of his own assassination. Dozens of people dreamed that the, that the Titanic sank before it did. And there's records of all of this. So we know that like they didn't make it up after the fact. I mean, obviously Abraham Lincoln died, but um, they didn't make it up after the fact. It was recorded before it happens. Same thing with 9-11. And so had experiences of precognition and precognitive dreams as a child. Um, and then had what I might call channeling experiences. And this is when I started to get kind of freaked out. I've always loved um, fantasy, fantasy and science fiction and would had like started building this world from around the time I was eight, like the lore and the encyclopedias and the beastiaries. And then I would write these spinoff stories. And sometimes I would write a, 
you know, a sentence. And weeks or months later, I would find that exact sentence in a book I had never read before. And at first I was like, oh, it's coincidence, right? There's nothing to that. But then um, this, there, there came a time where I wrote an entire two paragraphs that I then found in a Brent Wheat's book called The Way of the Shadows. I was pretty wigged out about it. And, you know, I tried to talk to actually my English teacher of all people about this and she just didn't get it. She was like, well, do you read a lot? And I was like, yeah, but I've never read this book. And so it was at that point that um, I started to get a little bit scared because I didn't know what was happening and it didn't fit within, you know, the framework of reality I'd been given. So I was like, I'm going to put this on a shelf and just pretend like it doesn't exist. And then um, in a little prior to 2017, I did have a couple of, of intermittent experiences. And one of these was uh, dream telepathy, which is where you have the same dream as someone else. And so um, I had moved across the country with my boyfriend. We were like 18 and we'd fallen asleep one night and I had the most vivid dream. And I don't normally remember my dreams. And when I do, they make no sense, none at all. And this was like stepping into a science fiction movie with a plot. And we were fighting a war on another planet. It was very weird. <laughs> and the next morning we woke up and I was like, I had the strangest dream last night and you were in it. And he was like, I had, uh, I had a weird dream too. And you were in it. And then he proceeded to tell me everything that happens in my dream. We had literally had the same experience of fighting this war on another planet. And so that was one of those things where um, I had no explanation for it at the time, but now, you know, there's a thing called dream telepathy and apparently it happens. So there was that instance of it. Um, and then a lot of what I've experienced since my spiritual awakening has been guidance related to my career. So like the way that I ended up working for IONS, that was pretty, that was pretty wild, right? Just like the random scrolling. I I literally wanted to like four months prior then like, I wish I could work there. And then a few months later, was sitting on a conference call with all of these scientists who I had been previously admiring. Mm -hmm. And then, um, yeah, just, just little things over the course of my life that, especially with the precognitive dreams, um, that I would say, uh, have led me to believe that there's more to reality than we are led to believe. If people have precognition, does that mean that the future has already been played out? And this is why, like, when I hear people like Ed Dames, like, prophecy doom, I'm like, but that's not the way it has to be. And we know that's the case. And this is something that Ingo Swan talks about in Psychic Literacy. He thinks that we have a psychic alert system. And the reason that we're shown those glimpses is because with that knowledge, we should be able to avert that timeline, right? And he gives an example from his own life where he was a young child and he had fallen asleep. And he had this awful dream of um, an explosion in his house and he was um, burnt alive. Um, and so he runs into his parents' room and he's like, hey, I had this awful dream and I'm not sleeping here. And he demanded that they go sleep at grandma's house next door. And they did. And the house spontaneously combusted that night. And he gives other examples throughout his life of this psychic alert system where you're given a glimpse of something and it's like, okay, how do you avoid that? There was another one, um, this Welsh village, Aberfan, I think it's called. And kids um, from this, this region were all having dreams of a mudslide. And they found this out mostly after, but they were all having dreams of dying in a mudslide. Lo and behold, um, this, this landslide, mudslide thing happens and 147 people are killed, 128 of them school children. 
And then people start whispering about how, you know, these kids have been having these dreams. And there was a doctor who like put out a call to action and he was like, anyone who um, knows someone who had one of these dreams, like write to me. And he had 78 people right back telling him that, um, you know, people were having these dreams. And so I think it happens um, to us on an individual level. I also think it can happen on a collective level as with 9-11, right? And I think that one of the big things the world is missing is some kind of alert system where, you know, if, if people recorded their dreams, right? And I think this could be an app. If people recorded their dreams and you had a bot or AI or something scan these dreams looking for common threads, we might be able to predict the future, right? Assuming precognition is a real thing. And I feel like the possibility of it being real is enough reason to um, at least give it a shot and see what happens. Because what if we could avert the next 9-11? What if we could avert these things that um, people people believe are like, you know, that we're coming to the apocalypse or whatever. And so, no, I don't think that any of it is set, um, set in stone. I think that there's a lot of free will involved and there's never just one timeline. There are always multiple timelines that we can end up on. So are you saying then that all precognition are psychic warnings and changeable? I mean, I don't think that they necessarily have to be warnings. Um, I was actually, <laughs> yesterday when I was looking for parking, I was going to the Vortex and I it's really hard to get parking this time, um, especially at a trailhead in Sedona because it's high tourist season. And I was driving and I got this feeling to, to slow down. I just heard stop. And so I stopped. And, um, then the car adjacent to me and I hadn't seen these people get in their car. I it, like, there was no way for me to know that they were going to back out, but I stayed where I was for like 30 seconds. And then this car turns on its light and backs out. And I got a spot at this, um, this little trailhead in Sedona. And so it's things like that, where is it really a warning or is it so much like a guidance system? Um, I think that it's particularly helpful when it comes to being an alert system and avoiding bad outcomes. But I think that like sigh. Um, precognition can really just inform every part of our lives. This idea that time isn't linear. I think it's just a useful tool. I'm running out of time. So before we go, I want to let people know that they want to find your YouTube channel. There's going to be a link in the description. Mm -hmm. And also people may want to reach out to you and ask you questions. If that's okay with you, how should they find you? Yeah. So um, I can give you my email for sure. Um, I've got, Instagram. Um, also, if, if anyone is like a professional, if you're into business or anything, um, consider adding me on LinkedIn because I want to start having these conversations on LinkedIn. Like I said, I think they need to be normalized. And one of those places is in, uh, in the workplace. Uh, IONS has this idea of noetic leadership and it's the idea that um, these, these abilities intuition, sigh, whatever you want to call it, can make us better leaders and better stewards. And I'm like, it's it's really the case that if this stuff is real, we cannot afford to not be talking about it and harnessing it. So if you're a professional, um, consider connecting with me on LinkedIn. But otherwise, I'll give you my Instagram and my email and my channel. Yeah. All right, great. Cool. I'm on LinkedIn. I should connect with you there. Yeah, absolutely. I actually post my podcast there. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I awesome. take it a little bit of traffic, not a lot. I mean, it's kind of really not LinkedIn type of material, but not yet. I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> All right. Well, you've got the YouTube channel. You've got a regular job. What else are you up to that you want us to know about? I mean, that's kind of my life right now. I um, I work at a venture studio, which is very cool. 
I uh, read a lot and am now making a lot of content, getting into the swing of that. Um, I've also been a competitive athlete for most of my life. So mm -hmm. I pick up heavy things and I put them down again. Mm -hmm. I like deadlifting. Mm -hmm. um, you said you work at Adventure Studios? So Adventure Studio. And what is that? It is a company that builds companies. Um, you know, you think of like venture capitalism oh, and that's okay. like, and VC is something that like, okay, so you have a business and it has some traction. Now we're going to dump a bunch of money into it so you can scale. A venture studio is something that we take um, the seed of an idea and we grow that company. If we think that idea has potential and we grow it um, all the way to the point where you would have outside investors investing in it. And it's cool. It's called Nobody Studios, which I love um, sort of Ram Dass flavor there. And what's neat about it is that um, private companies, historically, uh, people like you and me couldn't invest in them. You had to have like at least a million dollars or something. And so it was really limited to um, an elite to kind of go and invest in this stuff. And now um, with the Job Act that they passed like five years ago, anyone can go and invest in um in private companies. And so it's it's cool if you're at all into investing, it might be worth checking out um, because you invest in this and it goes across the entire portfolio. And we're trying to build a hundred companies in five years. So it's a wild ride. <laughs> this is why I don't have a ton of free time, but when I do, I'm reading and, and making videos. Um, but it's a hundred companies in five years and you had equity stakes in every single one of those companies. Um, when we go public, we're not quite to the crowdfunding stage yet. We do have a few companies launched, um, but yeah, it is basically... Uh, a roller coaster of making a lot of companies really, really fast. All right. Well, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? Whoever is watching this, you are enough. You are worthy. You are beautiful. And you are here for a reason. All right. That's great. Kiara, thank you so much for joining us today. I wish you massive success with your YouTube channel and anything else that you're involved with. And I wish you the best. Thank you so much, Jeff. This was a lot of fun. All right. Have a great night. You as well. Bye. Bye. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.